you know, one of the uh, you know great moments of my uh, life was knowing that I was in a room and someone said, is he the artist? And I turned around to say, who were they talking about? <laughs> yeah, they were talking about me. Welcome to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Join me, Tony Tran. And me, Bill Robertazzi. Along with our amazing guests, as we explore how people's inner artist and inner engineer present themselves in their technical careers, in the art that they create, and most importantly, in living creative lives. Our guest today is Ron DiOrio. Ron was Vice President of Business Development and Innovation at The Economist Magazine Group. Among his many roles there, he led The Economist Media Lab. Ron tells us about his processes for innovation, including using Disney's three chairs method, using cross-functional teams, and bringing in outside ideas. Ron is also an accidental artist, working in a variety of different media, including photography and video. His art has been exhibited internationally and is represented by Peter Hay Halpert Fine Art in New York. Ron discusses how having constraints actually helps him to produce work in both art and technology. Welcome, Ron, to the Artist Engineer Podcast. Well, thank you, Tony and Bill. Why don't we start on your professional side? You've had a long career at The Economist Magazine Group, and that's where I saw some of the really fun and great things that came out of the work that you did with The Economist Media Lab. Can you tell us some highlights of that work and that group? You know, 20 years at The Economist gave me a lot of opportunity to grow with uh, the internet technology and the way that magazines were transforming themselves from print to digital. We did a lot of different things from online events back in 2002, 2003, but we also started producing audio. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of was uh, sort of the nurturing of audio, even pre-podcast form uh, with Apple to develop a way of thinking about programs and how The Economist would sound, right? The Economist is mostly an anonymous group uh, in the magazine, but how do, we, how do we bring forward some of the personalities that are there? And uh, it was through that work, uh, moving to the first podcast on Apple and then uh, taking over the feed to create Economist Radio in the lab, you know, now has over probably 100 million downloads a year. So a really important piece of work that was sort of given birth to, nurtured, readapted, and then incubated. But I think the Media Lab itself was probably the thing that I'm most proud of. It was non-existent before uh, we started it. It was given to me as a trade-off for another piece of work I was doing, going to someone else in the business. I was, I was uh, challenged uh, with the idea of how do we uh, create an, in a, an innovation lab that would work for the business? So there was a lot of thinking that needed to go into how it would work for the economist. And uh, maybe I can go a bit more into the methodology that, we, um, that I suggested and that we uh, used. But in the lab, over the nine, nine and a half, 10 years that we uh, ran it, uh, we were able to do some amazing work. And we were able to do some amazing work because not only were we able to quickly pilot and prototype, prototype and pilot things, but we were extremely opportunistic. Uh, whether it was in launching Economist Radio, partnering with SoundCloud at the time, or whether it was taking a really uh, simple concept around uh, recreating the museum in Mosul uh, and turning it into a VR museum installation at the Amsterdam Film Festival, or whether it was uh, taking a shot at machine learning where the output failed, but the failing, the failed output actually became an article in the magazine to show how far 
from ready uh, for prime time, machine learning was for writing articles. So while there were a lot of individual things within the media lab that we were able to uh, conceptualize, ideate on, prototype, I think just the idea that we were able to every year take two or three months, once or twice a year, to take a deep dive into places that the business may need to go to six to 18 months in advance and try to give the business some feedback on on uh, what the hard edges were, like where where could we move quickly? What kinds of skills did we need? You know, try, try to get the business prepared in advance of knowing that it needed it. There was so many different types of, let's say, technology, media that you mentioned, VR, audio in the day, and you're thinking 18 months ahead. How were you able to tap into these uh, ideas? Were you getting ideas from the outside? Were you keeping in touch with um, different trends? Like what, what was your process to uh, kind of think 18 months ahead? I think I always think of it like sort of a triangulation. There is like a listening portion of it. Like what inside the inside the industry are you seeing happening that you need to think about? The second part is like what inside the business are there opportunities to explore? And then how do you go about uh, getting the business to focus on it? So what we what we did at the beginning was try to describe how we would approach each lab. Uh, so it was a very small budget and we needed to first of all, have an innovation process. So um, at the time, everyone was talking about Google 20% time. I don't know if you remember that was big, but everyone I spoke to at Google said it was actually 120% time. They never actually took 20% away from their regular work. They did 20% on top of what they did, which was great to hear, right? They were still doing great work, but it was really an interesting way to frame it back to me starting this project. Uh, the other thing I looked at was cross-functional teams. That was a, a, a big thing. We had just come out of a, a project where I was um, certified as a Scrum product owner. So we, you know, agile and cross-functional teams, could we do a uh, developmental lab around that? And that would have been great, but I had no one who reported to me. So there was, and, and, and it was difficult to get people to volunteer time in from various groups in the business. So that didn't uh, quite seem right. So after some research, we, um, I, I found and I suggested and it was accepted. We settled on uh, Walt Disney's uh, three rooms or three chairs methodology. And this was an innovation uh, process that uh, Disney implemented at his animation studio in the early days to be able to get ideas to come through. And I think from what I read, one of the um, innovations that came out of this methodology was the storyboard. Uh, so the uh, three rooms, three chairs were basically dreamer. Uh, you can have any idea, uh, but you needed to show how it would work. And that was sort of the realist portion. And then there was a critic and these ideas would go uh, through. Uh, and you can imagine someone going in and saying, I've got Walt, I've got this great idea about this beautiful woman who falls asleep in the woods. And she magically, there are some elf-like men that discover her and wake her up. And people are like, oh, well, how would that work? And then go to the storyboard, sing a few songs. Oh, that sounds interesting. How are we gonna produce it? Uh, you started to get feedback, socializing the idea, I think getting the creative people working on it. So what I liked about this was, uh, at least on the critics side, the economist would oversample on that. There would definitely be a lot of smart people able to come in and look at these ideas and give me critical feedback. The second thing on the realist side was I felt like personally I could socialize the ideas throughout the business uh, with the right kinds of people, whether they be business or editorial, uh, to try to figure out how we could structurally uh, provide something that was useful to the business. 
but I needed to figure out the uh, dreamer side. And uh, to, uh, to get that, we, brought, uh, we proposed and brought in uh, two outside people every year, uh, these dreamers, fellows, interns, paid. They were given the first two or three weeks to just think about whatever problem we were putting in front of them and come up with as many ideas as they could and to come up with visualizations of the ideas because you know, at the time, I think, the, and, and probably still true, The Economist is primarily a language, print-based product and people think in words. So uh, the sooner we had a picture, the sooner people thought, wow, we might be able to do this. And we, start, we tried to ideate around that, knowing that a lot of the ideas wouldn't make it past the first set of um, uh, socialization. But what we did find was when we brought people into the room to tell them what we were thinking about, they made connections for us that were not necessarily apparent, but they were connections that were made with the two interns. So it became a, uh, a group project, right? So as soon as somebody gave us an idea, they projected something onto it and they sort of bought into it and it, it became their idea too. And so we were able to get um, more than a few things flowing really, really quickly like that. It was um, pretty amazing. The other thing we, I, I, I tried to do was to look at creative technologists, whether they came from a RISD or whether they came from NYU, we tended to bring in people who had an art background and a technical background. The art background was sort of critical uh, because we work in a compressed period of time and these needed to be people who were uh, suitably familiar with critique and revision. So um, anyone who's been through art school knows that you were going to get critiques, so they weren't thin-skinned. And unlike business school people who are like, you know, they, they've done so much research and, and feel so um, bought into it, they, they, I think that they don't quite take the feedback in the same way. And, and quite often we try to pair a creative technologist with a business analyst or a business person uh, so that they could play off each other. That was really the, the um, catalyst for moving so quickly is that the artists uh, could imagine uh, beyond um, you know, the scope of, of here's the problem. Uh, and then we were able to give feedback and have them build on it quickly without feeling like they were, their, their work was, was being diminished in any way. They saw it as a plus one rather than a uh, minus one couple of interesting things in the, that story. It's great. Uh, one I thought was interesting is, you know, one of the first things you realized you needed an innovation process. And instead of just sitting stuck saying, I need to innovate and come up with a innovation process, you went out and copied one from Disney, which I thought was actually uh, an interesting. It's like, if someone is to come up with something innovative, you can use that too. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the bringing in people is really interesting because it speaks to kind of beginner's mind with that fresh pair of eyes that doesn't know your business, doesn't know your world possibly, and bringing them in, they're able to see things that if you're in something for too long or too close, I imagine you miss. Was that kind of the thinking behind it? I guess there were, there were two thoughts, is that we, um, we had a lot of people who were geared to working the, um, the program and the roadmap. And a lot of what I was asked to do is not to interrupt that. Um, so I needed something uh, that I could, I, we could bring in from the outside that would help us catalyze the ideas that could be brought forward uh, with this. So those were part of bringing the, uh, uh, the outside uh, people in. And part of it was that some of them were working on these things in their own um, school practices like AR or VR, uh, where they were uh, the, leading, uh, the leading edge of thinking anyway. 
Um, so there, there was, there was not going to be anything inside uh, the business uh, that could have matched what uh, somebody was doing with VR as, you know, um, Samsung was launching their headsets. The other thing was that it allowed us to show how things might work without being beholden to a set of ideas around a brand, uh, even if we had to disregard the output. An example of this would be we did a, um, an experiment trying to uh, create a virtual uh, reality environment uh, that you could walk through the Big Mac index. Now, the Big Mac index is a, an, an index of a hypothetical basket of, uh, of, of uh, goods, in this case, the Big Mac against which you can measure uh, cost in different countries. And so we had a, ser we had a series of data points uh, across uh, time and across geography. Uh, and we were working with a very talented artist who is an animator out of Taiwan, Laura Chen. And she was working in 3D modeling uh, at NYU and she created uh, an incredible, didn't look like The Economist at all, visualization of what uh, the, the two axes of time and space could be. But even though people had to reject it on the fact that it didn't look like The Economist, they said, wow, we can do something. I mean, we were able to spin that up in like three weeks and it was with data that we had, what else could we do? So that's why the outside people were, uh, you know, quite uh, helpful and, and unique in, in this particular process. Great. And also you mentioned kind of bringing in outside people that you're looking for people with an artistic background or an art background and a technical background. And actually that hits exactly kind of in our podcast, what we're interested in, why so often technology people in our, in our world have an artistic background, or artistic um, passion um, as well. Do you have any insight about uh, working with so many people? What's in common there? So I think it has less to do with the uh, less to do with being creative and more to do with being imaginative and productive. Um, and I think that those two things, uh, you have some skill. I'm, I'm going to say 90% of what a technologist will present is pixel based on a screen, right? And I've I've thought with my own my own work that you know the same pixel that represents a chart or a word processing element is the same pixel that would represent uh, a part of a Van Gogh painting, right? So it's very democratized that you're working on the same palette. You know, for the last 20 years, the sky's sort of been the limit. If you could code, you could create something that could be visually presented. Artists who are excited by being able to present things quickly will move to, to screen-based art or screen-based product. And, and again, I think it's sort of in, in, that, in that space. For, for us, um, I have to say it was a guilty pleasure. I probably learned more uh, from the people who came in about thinking about how to be uh, imaginative, uh, which, and when you take imaginative with productive, that's where you get creative. And, and so it helped us get through that process. And I think that's a really nice segue to another part of your life. You've also had an extensive career working in other media as a photographer and an artist. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? What are you working on these days? What are you interested in? Well, I, I would consider myself an accidental artist, sort of like midlife crisis artist. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Uh, there was no crisis. And this was actually driven out of work from The Economist. When I first started at The Economist, one of the areas I was given to look at was mobile. At the time, there were no mobile phones. There was uh, PDAs, right? There was, um, that was the extent of, of it. And so I went out and I purchased a, a PDA from Sony called the CLIA. I think that's how they pronounced it. And I started taking uh, photographs with it. Um, that intersected <laughs> with um, 
uh, a thing called Photolog and Flickr coming about. And I started publishing my photos there. And lo and behold, people who were photographers or artists sort of take, took a shine to the work that I did. I was essentially doing um, painterly work. They were low, low res images. These were 640 by 480 images that I was re-rendering on the screen. People would call them Hopper-esque. But it allowed me to fall into uh, a situation where I, I was able to um, bring something totally new into my life, which was um, this visual artist element. So I started, started with that. And uh, after a, a little while of encouragement from people in the fine art world, I um, decided that I would take it a little bit more seriously. People at The Economist liked my work, and they gave me my first solo show at the Economist Gallery in their, um, at the Economist Tower at the time in uh, 2005. This all came out of just being given a piece of technology <laughs> and uh, using it and, and then finding an audience, which was sort of nascent at the time. Those were uh, social networks using visual images to connect people. I never took a photography course. I never took an art course. What I did take was a course in how to present yourself to the fine art market which sort of played into the whole thing about being a producer, right? And uh, there I learned the, uh, what you needed to do to have the box, the portfolio box, and go to a portfolio review, how to talk about your art. And there's a whole other world about talking about your art that I still haven't quite figured out yet, because maybe I'm too straightforward about it. And then how to ask for what you want. Woman Mary Virginia Swanson ran this two-day seminar. I totally understood it because it was about producing had nothing to do with the art. I had the art. All I had to figure out was what was the best work and how do I put it in front of people? I took that, moved forward with it, and uh, was fortunate to find a gallery in New York, Peter Hay Halpert Fine Art Gallery, to represent my work. You know, one of the uh, you know, great moments of my uh, life was knowing that I was in a room and someone said, is he the artist? And I turned around to say, who were they talking about? <laughs> yeah, they were talking about me. Uh, and so I had to get used to, used to that. But, uh, you know, working in business, I, I do keep track of uh, sales and, you know, because not because of the, the money that comes in, which is a byproduct. When somebody buys a piece of art, they're basically committing to live with it. And it is a humbling and sort of so satisfying to know that that's what that's how someone feels about it. And, um, you know, I, I think we create, at least I create in a vacuum, I create things that that are interesting to me, and you put them out into the world, so you look for look for reaction. But that was really how I got into it, and um, you know, tried to um, develop and uh, mature the work as I as I went along. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that there's still more to do, uh, still more to see, still more to present. Um, and I can continue to work through that. How has your work evolved over time? I'm sure you're not using the Sony Clio, Clio anymore. You know, I. I have to say uh, that I have purchased over 20 Sony Clias off of eBay, hoping that they would work in the same way. And the reason for that is that a lot of the work that I do has to do with eliminating uh, detail. Um, so the Sony Clia being a very low resolution capture device with a, uh, a, um, a fixed focus lens allowed me to have a style uh, that is hard to um, uh, recreate with a higher resolution camera. So um, I, I do have a, my family thinks I'm crazy. I've got dusty boxes of them in the, in the other room trying to uh, uh, find the uh, memory cards for them and uh, make sure that they work. 
for me, I'm sort of, maybe that's a, a place where I'm stuck, but I also moved into uh, creating uh, short form video essays. Uh, and those have been shown uh, in film festivals around, small, small film festivals around the world. Um, did some work that was presented at the uh, Kinsey Institute, uh, which was um, satisfying. The, uh, you're going back to like artist statements and how artists talk about their work. One of the things that I um, found was this notice, no, notion of cut-ups. It's, uh, I think, William Burroughs' idea of cutting things up and put, piecing them together. And so I never went to art school, so I never learned art speak. So one of the ways that I started to write about my art was to just go online, find 20 or 30 um, press releases about artists' work, and take the most incomprehensible phrases and string them together. And then I say, hey, this is what my art's about. And people would come back and say, wow, really, it's amazing. I, I get what you're doing. <laughs> you know, I, I always thought it was going to be the visual representation of it. But it just goes to show you that there are words that need to be added to it. I, I, I say that a little flippantly because I was just using those phrases to uh, sort of embellish what I was trying to say about the work in a way that was um, representative of what people in the art world expected. That's how I had to teach myself to write like an uh, artist. I guess there's kind of a balance between people taking a piece of art in and coming up with their concept of it, but being led there a little bit in a, in a direction. So, you know, it's just being a blank, here it is. You get a reaction, which is great, but a lot of people actually want to look at something or you told a little bit what to think about it too. Take something, that's the reason there's movie reviews and everything else out there or critics. Yeah, there's a, a book by Tom Wolfe called The Painted Word that goes into how this all started around an art critic called Clement Greenberg, who wrote a lot of the sort of critical essays around the abstract expressionists and how the, um, the, the plaque on the wall sometimes is more important than what's the, arts, the art that's on the wall. Uh, that's a good introduction to me to, to the art speak. You, uh, you said something I, I don't think I've ever heard. I, I've heard the term accidental techie many times in my career of the people who got pulled into technology, didn't know they were interested, good, whatever, you know, but the computer was put on their desk, they got good at it. But you mentioned accidental artists. But um, did you always have an interest in art and appreciation in creative pursuits? Um, and this is now, you know, the expression of it. Did that part surprise you or you've always kind of been uh, involved in, uh, and, and inspired by that? I think the, um, the imaginative process for me as a child um, so probably started with my best friend at the time, Joe Rensler, who is an, uh, a really uh, interesting artist who's up in Canada now. And we used to draw comic books when we were kids, like eight, nine years old. And we had a whole process of claiming the superhero and you had to have an origin and an arch enemy and a, 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 a whole set of things. Uh, so I, I think that the idea of storytelling with images was, was part of it. And you know, I, was, I, I went to NYU film school and I was a film school dropout, uh, went to work uh, at the actor studio and then the, at the public theater on the business side, at the actor studio on productions and then at the public theater on the business side. Um, so while I was involved in the um, nonprofit art world, I wasn't leading as an artist. So accidental, meaning I accidentally started uh, to do this out of something else. You know, I never really thought of myself as an artist. And literally when uh, that, that's a true story, when someone said, is this the artist? I turned around to see who they were talking about was because I had, you know, not considered myself that I was just, I was just me. 
Uh, I, I was going to say the other thing you mentioned is the, uh, which you mentioned earlier is about the producing things, that leap of faith to create something and then put it out there and, uh, and have people react and be humbled by it is, uh, I think, powerful. But that's actually what makes you a real artist, right? I think it was Fellini who said that every, maybe it's every filmmaker, but every artist needs a policeman or a parent watching over them. And that's because without constraints, you'll never get anything done. So whether it's time constraints or material constraints or monetary constraints, those are the things you have to work within. And that's very much true of producing technical products, right? There's the, the golden triangle of time, money, and quality. You're, you're constantly working through those. What I found when I was doing when I'm, when I'm working on things is that the art at least gave me a certain level of control because it was self-directed, but it still had constraints around it in terms of how it was going to be seen or purchased or satisfied in, in terms of an, an outbound process. Uh, but it was a different kind of set of problems. And I could go back and forth between problems at work with technology or products uh, and, and deal with that if I was stuck in the art. And it was a good way to sort of bounce back and forth. Yeah, I, I, I heard your story about becoming an artist kind of accidentally. And I heard so many parallels between doing artistic things in a corporate environment. Uh, and this is the part about execution and production. Did you find doing things on your own in your personal art, executing, delivering different or, or harder or easier than trying to do that in a corporate environment where you had like external deadlines or working with different uh, uh, multiple people across functional teams? I think, you know, when, when it's just you, um, like at The Economist, because it was anonymous editorial people and it was the brand was so big, uh, there was a lot of protection for whatever ideas you put out there, right? There was, uh, there, there, you know, you were, in a, you were in a box with a fortress around you. When you put, you know, there was my last uh, show here in New York, I think there were 70 pieces that had to go up and, you know, be framed or placed on the wall and sort of, um, you know, thought about that is a huge emotional output. Um, I think that there, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I, that I like about art is that you can show it to people, but it is emotionally draining getting through the um, process of, um, of uh, the opening and the display. And then the, you know, when your show closes, you're like, what, what do I do now? Where do I go? And I, and I think that's probably uh, something that I, I didn't appreciate working at the public theater when I was there, because one of the things that, um, I don't know if, if our listeners are familiar with Joe Papp. Joe Papp was this great theatrical empresario, uh, and he uh, started Shakespeare in the Park, and he defeated Robert Moses for the space in Central Park for the theater. But I think his greatest attribute was that he created this machine down on Lafayette Street at the public theater building where they would do 13 to 15 productions a year. We would do 13 to 15 productions a year. Some of them wouldn't be great. Some of them would be art, and some of them would be hugely successful and generate a lot of money to do more things. The other thing is that I, I think it, it taught me in hindsight that all those other things that you do that don't make art or that aren't financially successful are influencing and informing how you're working in the future. And they can do that in a number of ways. You're either working with people that are going to come back and do something even better. Uh, at the theater, it was actors and actresses and playwrights. It, it was also you need to have a structure around to make those really talented people uh, have something to plug into. So you needed platforms and, you know, sort of an architectural structure uh, to make the technology work. So I'm sure I answered your question, but it just made me think about how 
uh, technology and theater production uh, have, a, have a lot in common, uh, but theater is much more brutal because things are more likely to close 99% of the time, whereas in technology, you know, you, you get something and it sort of runs until, until you can't keep the lights on anymore. Well, that's great. Uh, last question, Ron. What, what's exciting you today? What are you looking forward to in your professional life or your creative life? Well, you know, there's a, a few things. One, you know, moving off from The Economist, looking for my, my next place to uh, work and hoping to find uh, an announcement soon. Uh, but looking at being able to work across more industries, trying to solve different kinds of problems technically, and also bringing some of this producing acumen that I hopefully have uh, burnt into my DNA working at the public, working at The Economist uh, to those projects to deliver them. On the artistic side, I think we're about to uh, begin the process of uh, every year we do an annual print for the gallery uh, that requires uh, me to produce um, a selection for the gallery to look at and then uh, they commission that be sent out to their uh, collectors so hoping to get that uh, kicked off in the next uh, month or so most importantly just trying to get through this time period that we're in uh, there's uh, nothing like collaborating in person I've worked online and then video conferences, you know, for the 20 years I was at The Economist, and they're all great, but there's definitely something about being able to laugh with someone uh, serendipitously over near the coffee machine or sitting in a room on it with a whiteboard uh, that I haven't seen recreated uh, through Zoom or Hangouts or anything like that. Well, that's great. Uh, we look forward to hearing about what you'll be coming out with next. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to collaborate in person at some point. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Ron. It's been a, an amazing conversation. Well, thank you for having me and uh, good luck with the program. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can email us at podcast at theartistengineer.com if you have show ideas or want to follow up with feedback or just want to say hi. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to connect. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes at www.theartistengineer.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review as it helps the show get discovered by more people. And also hit the subscribe button.